This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. It frightens me, not only how good they are at what they do, but what, what percentage of their readership is female. It's well, like, why do women have so much invested in feeling shit about themselves? Well, it's not even that. I feel like what's even more depressing is the Daily Mail has the highest percent, percentage of female writers on the staff. Um, and that definitely feeds into why there's so many female readers. But why are there so many female writers who are so happy to basically be female minstrels and present the most stereotypical, insulting, derogatory image of their demographic as possible? Mm -hmm. And they'll get female columnist one who's representing the, you know, the crazy, childless 50-year-old woman who like lives in an attic and is obsessed with animals. And then there's the kind of high-flying businesswoman. Hang woman. on, I think she just described me. <laughs> <laughs> And then there'll be the high-flying businesswoman who had loads of professional success, but it's just would give it all up if only she'd had babies. And then there's like the crazy next-door lady who just bitches about everybody and gives homophobic slurs on pop stars. So it's like these horrible stereotypes of women. And a lot of these women were quite smart before they went to the Daily Mail. They edited magazines. They were like were restaurant reviewers at the Telegraph or something. And they go to the Mail and they just go completely insane. Um, so I think what's more depressing to me, it's not that so many women read it. Yes, we all know women, for some reason, seek, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of women have a tendency to seek out things that validate their worst fears. I think what's more depressing is that there are so many women who are willing to take a six-figure salary in order to write that kind of garbage. Well, it is that. I'm sure they're doing it for the money. Oh, sure. I mean, what other reason is there? And the Daily Mail pays so enormously. Yeah. But there is, you know, there is no six-figure salary in the world that could make me write a column about how Princess Beatrice looks fat in a bikini and to put on a caftan, as one particular female columnist did. It just, like, I just don't understand how anyone can do that. I don't understand how someone can be so mean, so misogynistic, so cruel, whether they're a man or a woman. Yeah. But again, it is, I think it's really, really true that women, there's something about women that we almost seek out things that make us feel bad about mm. ourselves. Mm. I do think there is that tendency. I mean, certainly, you know, if I'm on, you know, a, a website, if there'll be some article basically saying, you know, something about, you know, you can't have children over 33 or, you know, or, you know, you're going to put on tons of weight after you're 35 or all these kinds of ridiculous things you see on the Internet. I will read it and it mm -hmm. will like bug me in the back of my brain while at the same time I'll just be screaming at the screen. Um, I think to be I feel like women and girls, particularly girls as well, are, are told a lot of negative messages about themselves and do get these doomy warnings throughout their lives. So there's this tendency then to seek out things yeah. to validate your nightmares. Um, and at the same time, I think most women are intellectually well-equipped enough to know that a lot of this is just nonsense. And yet at the same time, you can't stop yourself from looking at it. It's basically like the equivalent of Pringles. You know it's just <laughs> totally nutrition-free, and yet you somehow can't stop it. Yeah, yeah. you need somebody to remove the jar <laughs> completely. Um, I wanted to talk about female bodies, mm -hmm. because a great deal of the book is, you know, we always come back to this idea that somehow the female body is inherently wrong. It's too lumpy, it's got hair where it shouldn't have hair, it, it doesn't have enough hair where you'd like the hair to be. Um, it's got stretch marks, it's got a blemish, it's got this, it's got that. Where do we go with that? Well, it's not, I feel like, you know, this isn't a new thing. I feel like yeah. women's bodies have always been held up as some kind of commodity in a way that men's haven't. And there will undoubtedly be some men out there, I'm sure not in this very well-read, brilliant audience, but who'll <laughs> stick their hand up and go, what about the Diet Coke advert? You know, guys, that was 20 years ago. Try imagining that all the time on every advert in every magazine. That's what women get. You know, it's just constant porning over women. And I feel like it's gotten worse. When I was a teenager, you know, there were magazines like GQ and Esquire around and all that kind of stuff, but you didn't have female pop stars posing naked on them like you do now. You know, Beyonce gets to number one, she'll pose on the front of GQ with no clothes on. Cameron Diaz has a movie out in the cinema, she'll pose on the cover of Esquire and just a pair of tights bending over. And these are not, these are not examples I'm making out of my overly pornified head. These are actual examples. You know, Rihanna has a single out, she poses on the cover of Esquire wearing literally just an open leather jacket. This is a new thing, and it's this weird message that's being sold to young girls and women that it doesn't matter how successful you are as a woman or talented. All that matters is how sexually available you look. And 
that is a really big change from 30 years ago, certainly, mm -hmm. so 20 years ago when I was a teenager. And I, wa I watch 80s movies all the time. I'm quite obsessed with 1980s movies. Mm -hmm. And you look at those films and the women in those movies would not get apart today. It's so depressing. And the way they dress, they look basically like the Amish compared to what women look <laughs> yeah, like in yeah. movies. <laughs> I mean, if you look at music videos now, music, music videos from the 80s, you see these beautiful, beautiful women wearing layers and layers of clothes. Now it's almost against the law for women to wear any form of trousers. Or any clothes. In, in a music video. <laughs> like the number one single in, I think certainly in America, I think probably also in the UK, is this, this song called Blurred Lines by this guy called Robin Thicke. And the entire video is, and this is not an exaggeration, it's him and the rapper, rappers Pharrell and T.I. standing there eyeing up women who are wearing nothing but skin-colored G-string. That, that's the video, and obviously that went to number one. Um, when GQ had their Man of the Year issue out, I think it was in December, they put out seven, seven different covers. Now, six of the covers were men in tuxedos, so it was like Daniel Craig, Pharrell again probably, you know, blah, 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 probably Robbie Williams making a comeback of some sort. And <laughs> the one woman was Lana Del Rey, who's this female pop star, completely, completely naked, just sitting on the floor, holding her knees up to her chest. Because that's what women do on magazines. That's what women do in videos. They get naked. Um, and it's like this weird leftover from the change in the 90s when suddenly there was the whole ladism culture, laddish and all that. Ladettes, that's what it was called. Ladette culture of women drinking loads of beer and basically being lads. And then there was the raunch culture that came after that in 2000 when someone like Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian, the two biggest celebrities America has produced in the past 12 years, have become famous through having sex tapes. So suddenly being, uh, acting like a playboy girl was the way to get famous. And that's how it's all changed to now. When you just have these A-list celebrities taking all their clothes off in magazines, taking all their clothes off in music videos. And men don't have to do that at all. And I'm not saying men should do that. I don't really want to see anybody naked who I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I, I find that really toxic, that for a woman to be famous now, she has to be deemed, you know, I'm sorry to use this word, it's what they always use in the magazine culture, they have, she has to be deemed fuckable. And it's not just being attractive, it's looking like you're actually about to have sex by yeah. taking all your clothes off. And also the poses are very much, you know, here's the entry point, come on in. <laughs> which I find really kind of like, okay, okay. I don't need that much information about you. I'm not your gynecologist. <laughs> but how do we make it stop? Well, for me, it's just kind of railing about it and also to really emphasize to young girls and teenagers how stupid it is for them not to be fed, to be fed for them to be fed this message and for them to know that, you know, we should feel sorry for these people like Rihanna or whoever. You know, there are a lot of arguments one can have about is this young women owning their sexuality? And I have to be honest, I just really have very little patience with that argument. You, a woman can feel sexy without having to, you know, to kowtow to some very traditional, conventional image of porn. You know, for a woman, to, a woman doesn't have to take all her clothes off to feel sexy. A woman doesn't have to take all of her clothes off to prove how powerful and cool she is. I think just to keep emphasizing to young girls, to teach the next generation, that this is not a normal way to be, mm -hmm. and that you don't have to be this way, and this is just really sad. You know, you watch old music videos like girls just want to have fun. You know, Cindy Lauper is there jumping around in a full-length skirt and some, like, really baggy jumper. You look at a Rihanna video today, she's literally wearing nothing. You know, she's just kind of, you know, sort of jumping around on a boat so you can't entirely see everything. Yeah. It's so, like, how much further can it get? Like, the next generation is going to be music videos with just skeletons. I mean, there's, like, no, no much, there's not much further we can go. Well, I do sometimes see red carpet photos, and I think, why don't you just come naked? Let's get it over with. <laughs> you're, as, you're as close to it as possibly can be. I think they do that at Cannes. Do they? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not reading the foreign press enough. <laughs> um, speaking of movies, I love your chapter about the, the misconceptions that, that young women can get about women from the movies. I thought maybe you could talk to the audience <laughs> through some of them. There's quite a few. There's a lot. This is because, basically, um, I grew up in a family where we weren't allowed to really watch TV other than Sesame Street. If I just knock this, probably. Um, other than Sesame Street, because my mother wouldn't let us watch adverts. You know, she was one of those types of mothers. So all we could watch were videos. So we would buy, rent, rent loads of videos from East 86th Street Video Store. And the videos we'd rent were loads of 80s comedies and teen films. So I grew up watching movies like Say Anything, you know, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Ghostbusters, Three Men and a Baby, you know, 
all the classics. Um, and there are certain tropes in all those films, and they've become a bit exacerbated since, I find. Those films, actually, when I watch them now, they look really modern and kind of on the edge. Whereas <laughs> films today, you compare like a rom-com from the 80s, like you know, When Harry Met Sally, with some total garbage starring Catherine Hagel called like 27 Dresses. It's just like no competition. But anyway, so there are always these little tropes that I grew up really believing, such as like, you know, funny girls never get the guy. You know, in movies, the funny girl is always like the platonic best friend or the romantic, the female romantic lead's best friend. She's never actually the one who has any romance of her own. So I really believed that because, to be honest, that was kind of my life until about the age of 32. Uh, so that, maybe that is true. I kind of feel like that was a self-perpetuating myth on my part. And I also think that's a really bad message to send that. You know, women can't be funny. It's not sexy. It's not attractive. It's threatening to men. And maybe it is threatening to men, but those men are idiots. And why would you want to go out with those idiots? Um, God, what else did I do? I can't, I've got so many other tropes oh, would you, in that would you book. Would you like to refer to your... <laughs> refer, to, <laughs> refer to my oeuvre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you want to do that, I'll, I'll fill our glasses. Um, a little oh, yeah. bit of business to distract the audience. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. One that always really bugged me is, like, in movies... Well, actually, we'll do two parts to this. In movies, there's always this idea that men are all desperate for sex, that they're just always the ones who are begging for sex, and the women are kind of like they're fair maidens locked away in a tower, and, oh, no, back away, back away. Um, and then as, like, every, every single person grows up, they realize it's never that simple. Uh, and you know what? Sometimes not all guys are in the mood, and that's okay. But this means if women grow up watching these movies, the first time you get knocked back by a guy... You just think, what, what? No, like, you would have sex with a donut. Like, what? <laughs> oh, this is like the most humiliating experience of my life. And also, if you're a woman, you grow up thinking that you're supposed to be quite virginal and you're supposed to not really like sex. And, you know, this is like, so then when you do want it, it feels like this weird, filthy thing and you're going to end up like Mercedes, what is it? No, Stockard Channing in Greece. And you'll end up like <laughs> shamed and have a fake pregnancy and you'll just be the bad girl on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, and then you grow up, hopefully, and realize that it's not quite that way. And sometimes women have high sex drives, and sometimes men have low sex drives. And that's what, you know what? It's because we're human beings. And it's not that all men are like these weird hound dogs chasing after everybody. It's, just, it's, a, it's a cliche that's so insulting to both genders that mm -hmm. I just don't understand it. And another one that really bugs me, and this is only a recent thing, this is, again, me slagging off modern movies, is that abortion doesn't exist. Abortion in modern movies just doesn't exist. It doesn't happen, which is... Amazing, because you know what? It used to happen, like quite a lot, actually, in the 1980s. There were like loads of films that mention abortion. Things like um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. There's this whole abortion. I really recommend this film to everybody. It's really amazing. Um, it just has this little bit in it. It's not like the whole film, this terrible tortured thing. It's a, it's a funny teen movie in which this young girl is 15 years old, I think played by Ali Sheedy, if I remember, um, has a one-night stand with her high school crush, the senior guy and he gets her pregnant. So she's underage, this is like a serious deal. And in the, so she has to go have an abortion. She is not condemned for this. The only person who's condemned is the horrible guy who had sex with her and then never spoke to her again and refused to go with her to the clinic. Instead, her lovely brother takes her and it's fine and everything's fine. It's not, it's not a terrible thing, it's not a great thing, it's just a normal thing. Also, Dirty Dancing, which I didn't realize until I was like 20 and watched it for the 25th time. <laughs> Actually, the major plot impetus in that is an abortion, that Patrick Swayze's partner, dance partner, gets pregnant, and she has an abortion, but because she can't, because it's the 1950s, she has an illegal one, and she nearly dies, Jennifer Grey's father saves her, yada, 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 you know, time of my life, etc., etc. Um, <laughs> so, like, this all happened in movies, and this was neither judged, it wasn't said, this is a really great thing, you can have an abortion, yay, fun day out. It was just like, this is a fact of life. And now you get movies like Knocked Up or Juno or Waitress, stuff like that, in which abortion is just like evil. It's terrible. And it just doesn't happen. People don't do it. Um, Juno, I thought was a very good movie. I don't, I, hope, I don't know how many of you saw. I hope I'm not talking randomly here. Um, in which a schoolgirl gets pregnant and she decides to go to the abortion clinic. Now, there are many reasons someone may or may not have, decide to have a baby. Obviously, this movie, she has to have the baby. Otherwise, there's no movie. Like, I'm not a total moron about this. Also, it's not like I'm going, everyone should have abortions. Like, you know, some people can't have babies. That's fine. But the reason she doesn't have an abortion, I think, is just a really toxic message. She goes to the clinic. 
there's a classmate out there campaigning against abortion, going, you are killing your baby, um, you, your baby already has fingernails. And Juno takes that in, because oh, my baby has fingernails. And she goes into the clinic, and the clinic is like something out of a Republican scare poster. It's hilarious. Like, the receptionist is making really lascivious comments about blowjobs. There are all these really miserable-looking women there holding their miserable-looking babies. It's just terrible. And so she decides not to have an abortion, as you know you would if you lived in that weird Republican fancy land. Um, don't, you know, don't have an abortion. I don't care. But don't not do it. Don't have, a, don't have it in a movie in which the character decides not to do it because of some 14-year-old protester outside an abortion clinic. I think that's a really terrible message to send. Um, and I think this really reflects just how America has gotten so much more conservative. Like, obviously, a lot of these movies I'm talking about are American, because you can tell by my stupid accent, I am American. Um, and America has gotten so much more conservative since the 80s, which sounds crazy, because like when I was growing up, it was Reagan and Bush the first, and who we all, you know, all of us Democrats thought were, were just the devil. And now we look back on that sainted land and it looks yeah. like basically socialism. You know, like, like George Bush in his office, George Bush the first, obviously, um, had, a, had a big goldfish bowl full of condoms that he would give out to people to promote safe sex. Mm -hmm. Like George Bush the second was like considering, you know, legislation against contraception. You know, that's how much it's changed. You know, I'm, I'm sure Clinton had condoms in his office for different reasons, but like, it's just a whole new world. You know, there are states in America now where there are almost no abortion clinics, like North Dakota. Yeah. So it reflects the changing politics of America, but it's an international message that it sends, and I think that's really tragic. Yeah. It is. It is quite. I'm glad to be living over here as yeah, well. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I kind of look back and think, those can't be my people. <laughs> I don't know who they are. Um, but again, being from New York, it's, it's another world anyway. Yeah, it is. I, mean, I moved back to New York, like I said, um, and I moved back this last year. And to be honest, like, I've been living in London for 20 years at that point. I found it, I found even New York really? too conservative. I just couldn't really take it. And I was also there during the election campaign. And I hated, um, I just couldn't really take all the right-wing bile. And I know I sound like some snooty liberal elite, as, as Sarah Palin would say. But honestly, like the things those men would say about rape and stuff was just beyond my tolerance. You know, I hear people in this country complaining about David Cameron and George Osborne. I'm like, folks, you've got no idea how easy it is here. You know, there are, there are male senators, senators in, um, in America who believe that women can't get pregnant when raped because they're not enjoying it. So if they get pregnant, that means they enjoyed it, therefore it wasn't rape. Therefore, they can't have an abortion because you can only have abortion under certain, th certain situations in America, in certain states. Um, you know, th that kind of ignorance of biology and that total fear and fetishization of sex and women uh, is so bizarre. And to come out of a country like America, which is supposed to be all modern, yeah. is it, really depressing. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't really take it anymore. I came back. Came back. Also, I, I miss my friends. To be fair, there was also that. And also, I had to think of my dog. You have to. You have to keep your dog on a leash in America. And he, in England, they can run free in the parks. That was a very serious consideration too. But um, I, I, you know, all the sort of constant banter about like the unbelievable homophobia that major presidential candidates would come out with. It's just disgusting. You know, the amount of talk they would, the amount of time they would spend talking about. Women's, women's genitals and gay, ma gay male sex. I mean, it was like listening to some weird phone sex line. And actually, it was a presidential debate. Um, and there's nothing like that in Britain. I mean, there, there's certainly problems in Britain and political problems. But in terms of the social conservatism in America, like, there's nothing in Britain that can compare. Right. So we're staying. <laughs> um, you speak very eloquently about women's reluctance to consider their own wants and desires when they're out in the world making choices like, you know, he asked me out, should I go out with him? <laughs> Almost you should be grateful that somebody asked you out. <laughs> and um, I think it's not just relationships, it's in the workplace as well. Women are very reluctant to go in and insist on equal pay mm -hmm. or on the raise they're worth or even just negotiating at a job interview for what they want. And again, I wondered if you could uh, offer some of your wisdom about 
how to be more awesome in that regard. I also feel like we're about to fly away, like in the tornado, the beginning of the Wizard of Oz. We're going to go to luck, the land that, of Oz. Nothing bad will happen. <laughs> um, well, Sheryl Sandberg, who's the CFO, I think, of Facebook, has just written this book called Lean In, about how women need to be more forward at work. Um, the, the only problem with that book is it's really more for women who want to be like on footsie board members, basically. It's very high powered. It's very sort of certain elite of women about how to be more pushy. I'm probably a terrible person to give advice, basically, you know, those who cannot do teach, because um, I'm not particularly pushy at work. But I do think girls are taught at school to be self-effacing and feminine, amenable, not to be pushy and obnoxious. To be pushy and obnoxious is bossy, and that's like the worst thing a woman, a little girl can be. You don't want to be a bossy girl. You don't want to be like Lucy from Peanuts, although I actually love Lucy from Peanuts. But, you know, you want to you be quiet. You want to be like Marcy from Peanuts. Um, and you, I think these messages are ingrained in women all their lives. And whereas a man in a workplace can be, you know, domineering and masterful and commanding, you know, the equivalent feminine words for all that are pretty derogatory. And those things are so ingrained. Like, I find myself thinking them sometimes. Like, it's so weird. Like, there, there are plenty of male and female bosses in the office. And there are times when, like, I remember when I first started, and my, one of my female editors came up to me and was just like, going, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I was just like, God, what a cow. I was like 22 years old. And then when a male boss did that to me, do this, do that. And I was like, yes, yes, of course. Because uh, you're just taught these things all your life. Obviously, uh, I really hope I'm no longer such a terrible sexist. But I'm, I really remember thinking like, God, this is like, it's not how a woman behaves. And then obviously mm. as I've grown up, I've become a total bitch. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, we all know these messages. You know, certainly for me, I, I, had, I have very, very lovely parents. My mother is from Cincinnati, Ohio, which is like smack in the middle of the States. And she was like a prom queen, and she was real from small town America, and she's like the town beauty and all that. And she's very, very modern in lots of ways. But in other ways, she's very old fashioned and, you know, doesn't put herself forward and, you know, never would brag about herself and always wears dresses and looks pretty and presentable. And I think you pick up on those things from your mom. And the thing is, your mom grew up or your mother grew up, you know, 30 years before you. It's a different era. You don't need to have those values still ingrained in you, whether she taught them to you or not. Yeah. And then in relationships as well, <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like, you know, will he call me back? But you're not even thinking, did I actually enjoy our date? Mm. You're just thinking, will he call me back? Yeah. Maybe my phone's broken. Let me check it again. <laughs> like, Please let him be dead. Please let him be dead. So rather than be dead than not call me. Please let him be dead. Um, <laughs> There's a kind of validation. I, don't, I honestly don't know if men have this as well. Like I talk to my male friends, and they really don't seem to have it as well. I remember when, I'd be, when I was living in New York, and I'd go out for brunch on Sundays with a bunch of female friends. And I remember once looking around the restaurant, and it was all this bunch of women all at their tables. And everybody was looking at each other's mobile phones, decoding messages from guys that they'd all gone out with. I'd go, oh, he definitely likes you. He's totally going to call. Oh, yeah, let me look at Oh, yeah, he's so into you. He definitely likes you. It's kind of like this Sunday morning ritual in New York of everybody reading each other's smartphone. Oh, he so likes you. Oh, my God, he's going to propose. Um, <laughs> um, and I think, like... I don't know how that how I started. Like, I mean, I'm not like my parents are not super pushy parents. But I remember at summer camp, I actually went to summer camp. That's how American I am. And I was like 14, and we all went on some camping trip where we actually had to sleep in tents. Like, um, and it was girls and boys, and we were like the sophomores, I think we were called. And I remember one of my friends, one of my girlfriends, came up to me and went, "Oh my God." Evan really likes you. He wants to ask you to the dance. And I had no idea who Evan was. And I was like, oh my God, really? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then he did ask me to the dance. I was like, of course. Oh my God. And I was, I was like, I remember thinking at the time, God, he's quite boring. I hope he calls me again. Um, like, I don't know where that is, like where that comes from. And that definitely stayed with me throughout my 20s of just... I would hear, I would learn from, through multiple grapevines, so probably entirely untrue, that some guy maybe liked me. And I'd go, oh my God. And then he wouldn't call me again, and I'd be heartbroken. And like, I never even liked him. And yet, you just suddenly put all your validation, all your, your self-perceptions on this, on this nonsense, this bit of gossamer. Yeah. Meanwhile, like most 20-something guys just like wandering around their own fog, have no idea. Yeah. And you know, all these women in the back are going, please let him call me, please let him call me. Um, and maybe some guys do that. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've never come across a straight male guy, a straight, a straight guy yeah. who, who gets so obsessed about this kind of stuff. As so the, the awesome woman. 
doesn't worry about this. The awesome woman just thinks, do I actually like this guy? Do I actually want him to call me? If he calls me, do I want to go out again? Like, just because he asked me on a date doesn't mean I have to go on a date. That, that book, The Rules, which probably quite a few of you have heard of, which was this insane dating manual uh, written by these two American women, all about, you know, if he calls you after Wednesday and wants a date for the weekend, it's too late. You've got to put him off till next week. When he calls you, you've got to wait three days to call him back. He's got to be the pursuer. You're the pursued, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the Sex in the City and this great book called Girl's Guide for Fishing and Hunting by Melissa Bang. Like, all these books and TV shows all, like, use the rules as plot devices. It became such a huge thing. And everyone's going, it's terrible, but you know it works. Um, and, and nowhere in this book does it ever say, do you like this guy? Like, do you actually like this guy? Like, who you're kind of waiting three days to call back, who you're kind of putting off, you're, you're pretending you're having a fabulous social life. Remember, there was one, there was one tip in it. I was like, if, you call, if a guy calls, turn the TV on right away. So it sounds like there are loads of people in your apartment. You're really popular. <laughs> like, like, I was like, the neighbor's theme song comes on. <laughs> An advert for hemorrhoid cream. <laughs> so popular. To say, you know, oh, have you got the cast of Friends round again? <laughs> I'm having dinner with friends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on a more serious note, it really does seem um, online, where most of us are living our lives nowadays, that it's open season on women, um, especially on social media. And I know you've had a few run-ins with uh, threatening Types, and I don't mean to make a joke of it, but I just wonder what, again, what, what do we do about this? How do we combat it? I'm not sure that a one-day moratorium no, no. is really a solution. <laughs> well, this is a very unguardian thing to say, so please don't tell this to Alan Rusbridger, if any of you know him. But, I mean, for me, the way to end it is to ha stop this anonymity online. I mean, you know, I deal with Guardian commenters all the time. They always, if any of you go on the Guardian website, I'm sure you've seen them on, you know, underneath telling me that I'm a waste of space, waste of atoms, blah, blah, blah. Is this someone's homework? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> what I love is when they go, uh, they're all like yelling at me about how pathetic I am. And I'm like, I'm pathetic. You're the one who calls yourself Snoopy bad boy. Like, <laughs> um, and there's been a lot of talk on Twitter recently about abuse towards female journalists. I feel like I really have to emphasize there's been abuse to women on social media for a long, long time. It just has happened to be that suddenly a couple of female journalists, including myself, got some quite weird abuse. And just because we're journalists, we're able to write about it. So I don't want it to sound like only female journalists get abused. We're such a hard done by group. Um, you know, a lot of women have been abused. Um, again, I just don't understand why people can have this anonymity. I understand if you know you're doing WikiLeaks and you're exposing, you know, government secrets. Then fine, you can call yourself Snoopy Bad Boy. But if you're commenting under an article, if you've got Twitter and you're sending messages to people who you don't know, mm -hmm. like, why? Why is that allowed? People aren't allowed to go walking around the streets with giant hoods over their faces going, I'm going to rape you. And yet somehow online, it's just like, oh, it's the Wild West. It's how it works. It's like, no, it's not the Wild West. It's actually an area where so many of us spend so much of our time, so, you know, do so much interacting, do so much of our work. I mean, surely the same rules apply online as they do in life. So a couple of weeks ago, it was probably about a month ago now, someone sent me this ridiculous bomb threat on Twitter saying, I've put a bomb outside your house, it's going to go off at 10.45, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and at the time I thought, this is ridiculous, I, I don't know what to do. Um, but my boyfriend said, you, you know, you should call the police because sending a bomb threat is illegal. So I called the police, four policemen came around, like, just thinking you've got to have better things to do than this. Um, <laughs> And like, you know, they hadn't really heard of Twitter. They didn't really know what to do. They, you know, of course they didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, they kept sending me email updates going, yeah, we haven't figured out who it is yet. And I was like, of course you haven't. It's like some weird anonymous account that's then immediately been deleted. And Twitter doesn't know either because they just have to use like fake email addresses. I mean, the way to stop this is for everybody to have to use at least a real email address when they sign into a website. Take some responsibility for what you're saying, for God's sake. Um, I really feel that in particular on newspaper websites. I'm not just saying this because I get so much abuse. Like, I see all journalists getting so much abuse, whether they're on the New York Times, with the Daily Mail, Guardian, the Times, whatever. Um, you know, people just go, it's so easy to go on and like, this is so crap. You know, like, interact like a grown-up. 
you know, grow up here. You know, if you've got, if I have to put my name to a piece, I have to put my photo, then so do you. Like, and, you know, I'm happy to talk to commenters. I always go underneath. But, like, if I get a rude comment, I'm going to be really rude back. In fact, I, I've probably been moderated <laughs> more than any other journalist <laughs> in the Guardian at this point. There was a moment last week when I'd written some total piece of ridiculousness um, about Beyonce's haircut. That's how I put my degree to good use, people. Um, <laughs> And I was just getting so much abuse from the commenters on like, is this the Guardian? Um, and so I was like being equally sarcastic back to them. And before my comments even went up, a message would flash on my screen going, deleted by moderator. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I'm not the best one for giving advice about etiquette online. <laughs> OK, but you can give advice about this. You identify something that you call the self-deprecating Tourette's. Yes. I wonder if you can, are we losing people? <laughs> I wonder if you can A, tell the audience what it is, and B, tell us how not to succumb to it. Well, to not apologize for everything all the time. I've, you know, that's, this is something that women do all, all over the world, but it's certainly something English people do. To, uh, I feel like there's this idea that English people think that this is very charming. In Scotland, I haven't uh, encountered it so much, the constant <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That, that's not a slur against Scotland. Like, I, I, I'd been living in England for so long that by the time I went, moved back to New York in 2008, nine, whatever it was. I remember going to Whole Foods, that ridiculous overpriced supermarket, and someone ran over my foot with a shopping trolley. And I went, oh, sorry, like that English way. And she went, that's okay. And I was like, no, don't you understand? Like, when I'm saying I'm sorry, that means you fucking woke over my foot. <laughs> <laughs> that's the code. How do you not know that? <laughs> so I think, first of all, to get rid of this idea that being constantly apologetic is charming. Um, and to, to actually complain is, uh, is outrageous. You know, you don't have to apologize at the time. Count the number of times you say sorry in a day, divide it by probably four, and that's how many times you should probably be saying sorry. Um, I say sorry all the time. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's like basically my form of breathing at this point. No. Um, and it just puts yourself down. It just puts you down to yourself. Uh, the self-deprecating stuff is, I find women do this a lot more. You know, if someone goes, I mean, someone said it to me in the year, like, someone said, oh, it's a nice dress. And I literally went, oh, I've had this 10 years. Yeah. Like, that's like the automatic response. And that's basically like taking a present someone's given you and throwing it back in their face. Yeah. Um, it's not charming. It's not, it, you know, to say thank you doesn't make you look like a total arrogant cow. You can't just say thank you. You know, thanks. You know, if someone says, oh, congratulations on your promotion, you know, go, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> You know, thanks. You know, I, I realize Americans do too much. You know, America, you, meet, you meet American, particularly American guys. Maybe it's mainly New York guys. You meet them at a party and you go, you know, hi, I'm Hadley. You know, what do you do? I earn 150 grand. <laughs> I just bought a $90,000 month of loft. Uh, you don't need to be that bigging up yourself. You can't just be like a normal human. Like, you know, just go, I'm fine, thanks. I just got a promotion at work, it's really great. Yeah, I've been working quite hard, it's good. You know, that is allowed, you are allowed to do that. Um, everyone's laughing in shock at this idea. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, but I'm really terrible. I'm, I saw, there was like, a, I did a, a talk at a bookshop in London um, about a month ago or so. And someone took a photo of me on stage with the other person and sent it to me on Twitter. And I'm literally sitting there like this. I try to make myself as small as possible. Don't listen to me. I apologize for my disgusting body. Um, <laughs> like just to like calm down. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. We've got about, according to my watch, we've got about uh, 10, 15 minutes left. I would like to throw it open to audience questions. Whoa, hands are flying up. Now, hang on, there's a roving mic. This gentleman here with the spectacles is the first person I saw. I apologize because I was facing that way, so it was slightly unfair. Oh, <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> I want to thank you for um, the discussion so far. And I'm intrigued because you refer to females and women in your discussion, and yet the title of the book has a reference to ladies. Um, is there a difference, in your opinion, between a lady and a woman, and which would you prefer? Oh, no, I think there's no difference at all. I just really like the word ladies, and I was trying to kind of reclaim it. People think of ladies as like this weird prim, like the lady magazine. And I think ladies is just a really cool word. For some reason, I had it in my head to try to reclaim two quite hated words in my title. I thought that would be a great idea. Awesome and ladies. <laughs> and 
retrospect, maybe I could have just smuggled that into the book rather than putting it on the cover. Um, I just thought, like, you know, Modern Life for Modern Females sounded a bit like a biological textbook. And Modern Life for Modern Women sounded just a bit kind of boring. I thought Modern Life for Modern Ladies, yeah, cool. You know, it can be quite... I hate this word so much, I'm not, I can't believe I'm not saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it for you. Sassy. Um, so no, there isn't really a difference in my... Am I, the only the only word I object to is when people refer to women as girls. That really that really bugs me. I, uh, it's not I, that's not quite. I realize making that statement doesn't make me quite Andrea Dworkin, but um, I, it, it does really annoy me because people don't do that to men. They don't refer to men as boys. I do. Do you? Well, the ones I've known. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I they're. I, I refer to men as boys, so I don't mind girls quite as much as you do. I just think women are sold so many messages about how they should look as young as possible to like the point of prepubescent, yeah. you know, getting bikini waxes, getting, you know, being so skinny, you know, wearing clothes that make them look younger than they are, you know, anti-aging bollocks and all that. You know, I feel like it's like a fear of growing up. You know, you should be proud to be a woman or a lady. You know, you're a grown-up. Okay. <laughs> Another question. Okay. Uh, this gentleman here, and then this lady <laughs> here. I, I don't know, I'm yet to read your book, I must admit, but I don't know whether you refer to one of my major irritants, um, and that's the idea that uh, when w women get married, they're meant to lose themselves. All of a sudden, they're no longer the name that they were. Mm. I once had a, an argument with a, someone who I assumed to be an intelligent social worker at work who told me once she got married and she changed her name, and I, start, I was asking her why. She said, well, it was her choice. And I was, um, that the idea that it was her choice in Britain is a nonsense because there's a whole history and tradition mm. that you have to change your name, and that's the culture that you brought up in. Mm. And as I say, it's something that so irritates me. <laughs> Well, what I would like is for it to be up to what, you know, whether the wife changes her name or the husband changes his name. I've come across some men who've changed their names to their wife's last name. And I feel if we could make that even, then that's fine. Or combining names. I do, I mean, I would find it quite strange not to be Hadley Freeman. Um, I, I don't really, I, I feel, there's a lot of things about the wedding tradition that feel quite anachronistic to me. Like I always thought if I got married, I couldn't imagine my father giving me away. Because that just feels like, like as though I'm his chattel, <laughs> when actually I'm a 35-year-old woman who hasn't lived at home for 21 years. Um, but I, I do know what you mean about that argument about women changing their names. For me, it, it doesn't bug me as much as other things. But I know a lot of feminist women who just absolutely hate it. Personally, my heart just lifts every time I hear about a man who's changed his name to his wife's name. I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lady, a lady in a kind of a beige top. And then there's somebody all the way at the far end. Uh, you and then, and then you. Thank you. So I'm a bit inaccessible over here. Um, I'm from California, so I was interested in all of your comments, particularly on abortion and the ridiculous things going on at the moment. But via social media, I, I actually posted something about Robin Thicke's song mm -hmm. on Facebook recently, and the reaction is always, there's someone who goes, yeah, good for you. And then there's always someone, usually my age, in their 20s, who's male, who says, you feminists try to ruin everything. Why are you trying to take the fun out of life? So what is your response to that, you know, trying to raise your voice while at the same time um, communicating in a diplomatic way? Well, I feel like this is why I find writing about feminism stuff in a, in a you know allegedly humorous way is often the best way because it's very it's sarcastic but it's also strong. There's no point in shouting and railing at people. I mean, for someone to say, "Oh, you feminists trying to ruin everything by making women put their clothes on," you're such a bitch. Um, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But you know what you could send your friend is that there's this video online now that someone's done in which the genders are reversed in that video, in which there's the women are all. Wearing suits and there's like all these naked men walking around. Now I don't really want that either. I want it to be like everyone could just be human beings rather than pieces of meat. But I feel that's a good way to ha you know hammer home to some guys who are reluctant to see the other side of the view. Um, you know how would you like it if this was you? You know how does that make you feel to be just judged on your body? Thank you. I, we'll have time for both. Hello. Um, 
I'd be really interested about your ideas on slut walks mm. because it's something that I find really problematic, although I kind of agree with the idea of reappropriating language. I still think it's ultimately something that like, women shouldn't have to declare their sexuality and a lot of women seem to turn up to slut walks dressed up as what they perceive to be as sluts yeah. and I found that really, really troubling. Mm. So it'd be good to hear what you thought about that. No, I'm with you on that. I, I wasn't the biggest fan. For those of you who don't know about slut walks, um, this was a movement, I believe it started in Canada, where a woman was sexually attacked on her way home from a party and she was wearing a miniskirt and the policeman basically said, well, if you dress like a slut, what do you expect? So this movement then started all around the world of slut walks with women dressed in very skimpy clothes saying we can go out and look however we want and we shouldn't be attacked. Of course I agree that a woman should wear whatever she wants and not be attacked. I do also find it slightly problematic this idea that only women who dress like sluts are attacked, which is part of the message I feel of that walk. You know, it's, it's, you know rape is not an expression of sexual desire. It's not like only hot babes get raped, you know, despite what Hollywood movies say. You know, women, it's just an expression of power and aggression. Um, I also feel this idea of reclaiming the word slut can be slightly difficult. I, I know I've talked about reclaiming, awesome. Um, but reclaiming derogatory terms, I find, is often a pretty tricky issue. Um, there have been a lot of articles, particularly on this, this one website I look at, a lot called Women of Color, um, and a lot of African-American press in the States about the reclamation of the N-word by the rap community and the problems that has caused, they feel, among young African-Americans and how they use it and how they perceive themselves. Uh, I don't feel that the word slut desperately needs to be reclaimed. It is ultimately an insult. It's not like it once was a great word and then suddenly it's been just kind of discarded on the ground. Um, and I'm not sure if, you know, say that this by having women walk around in very skimpy clothes, if, whether this is making a message. I feel like the message should really be that rape is not about sexual attraction and it's not about the women. It's about aggressive men showing a really perverted use of power. So I, I, I was a bit worried about the slut walks myself. You had your hand up? Hi. Um, I am a big fan of 1980s John Hughes movies <laughs> and I would just like to ask you what you think of the characters that are portrayed by females in those films. Oh. <laughs> um, I love John Cusack, I love the sure thing, I love say anything and it's all so male orientated. I just wanted to speak to you about how you felt females are portrayed within those sort of films. Well, it's funny you should ask that because I can exclusively reveal to this audience for the first time, I am actually writing a, fi uh, writing a, film, writing a book about 80s movies, like particularly from a feminist perspective and comparing them with teen movies today and the messages you get, like the messages I grew up with and the messages that teenagers today grow up with. Um, I, th my, I think my editor thinks this is going to be like the nichest book of all time. <laughs> it will sell like 10 copies. But I think, who wouldn't want to read about Molly Ringwald, for God's sake? Um, <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. Exactly. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to read about the meaning of Steve Gutenberg? Nobody, everybody wants to read about that. Um, I think, you know, if you look back on those films, I think it's mainly the John Hughes um, female roles that are so great. Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink. Um, the Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, Sixteen Candles, which is actually a terrible, terrible movie. And if you've seen it again, like there's the whole thing about the date rape at the end, which is so weird, and that scene is like a funny twist. Um, but Molly, you know, the, John Hughes. For those of you who don't know John Hughes, he was this amazing 1980s um, film director who wrote all the great teen films of that decade. So Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club, um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, he then sort of went down the age group in the 90s and started writing Home Alone and then actually left the human species altogether and did animal movies like Beethoven. Um, and then he died in 2009. Um, his greatest muse was his actress Molly Ringwald who starred in Pretty in Pink and Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles. And the amazing thing when you watch those movies is that they're a movie with a female protagonist who is smart and funny insecure but not mental, uh, doesn't have that classic female character attribute that all female characters in movies have today now, klutzy, um, you know, isn't ditzy, you know, isn't good at work but terrible in her social life. Uh, you know, she's just like a, a cool teenage girl who's, who's got problems, isn't strong in that annoying way I hate when female characters describe as strong. You know, just like a normal kid. And she's not seen in relation to the men. You know, she is her own person. 
um, and that's so rare in movies. And I love I love most '80s teen movies. I love John Cusack too. But like the problem with Say Anything is those '80s teen movies that are written from a boy's point of view. You just see it. You know, the, the girlfriends are like these kind of trophies in the background. And no matter how badly the boy behaves, you just want him to get with the girl. You're rooting for him. Um, and actually, when you watch a lot of those teen movies now, when the girl inevitably dumps the leading man, inevitably played by John Cusack, he then acts like a stalker and like follows her around everywhere. It's like staying outside her window, holding the holding the boombox. Boom um, goes to the high school, you know, is harassing her. And actually, if you look at it from another perspective, it's kind of weird. But yet, in those movies, it seems so romantic. Um, <laughs> But you know, you look at teen movies now, like I'm starting to now, and you don't get any female characters who are anywhere near as good as like Ione Sky, even in Say Anything, um, Sloane Peterson in Ferris Bueller, or certainly not Molly Ringwald or Ali Sheedy, any of those kinds of teens. You know, teenage women today in movies, teenage girls, they're super sexy, they're super bland, and they're super virginal. Like there's nothing interesting about them. The whole Twilight series is about virginity. Whereas you watch 80s teen movies, and you know those girls wanted it. Like they were as curious about sex as the boys, and that's because they're human. Whereas you know in Twilight, she can't have sex because she'll turn into a vampire or something like that. Um, whereas in Teen Wolf, for example, the original Teen Wolf, 1984, Michael J. Fox, even when, which is like a really amazing movie, basically about male puberty. It's a really great movie. It's so great. And you know, even when he turns into a werewolf, his girlfriend can still have sex with him. You know, she's not going to die. It's okay. Um, which is basically the message in teen films today. So for me, I just feel like teen movie women and teens in movies today have become more sexualized and yet more fearful of sex. Um, which is a really weird double message. You know, they'll wear like super tight designer jeans and like really tight little tops, and yet be like really, they're fending off the boys like that. Whereas in the 80s, the girls would wear baggy clothes, dressed like the Amish, you know, as we all did in the 80s. Uh, and yet they would want the boys. And I'm not saying they were like going around, you know, doing slut walks or anything, they, but they wanted it too. Like they're just as curious, like all 17 year old girls are. So. Things weren't perfect in the 80s movies, or in the 80s in general, but um, they're better than they are now, I'd say. I think we have time for one last question. Oh, you got my eye. <laughs> That'll probably have to be the last question, though. Um, thanks very much. Um, I've been following your 80s movies blog, so um, I've been getting all those insights um, on a weekly basis. Um, I'm old enough to, to remember those movies first time around. Um, <laughs> I also read your obit column of Nora Ephron, and likewise, I'm a huge fan. And picking up on the point about movies, Juno was written by a woman, mm. as far as I know, and yeah, was an Oscar-nominated script. Mm -hmm. um, Rihanna, um, Cameron Diaz, um, Beyonce are hugely powerful brands and mm. could choose not to pose on those magazines if they wanted to. Um, at the same time, there is, we saw, I'm sure you saw on Twitter, the uproar about um, solidarity is for white women only and, and there was you can't argue against women. I was thinking of the Tom Ford Vanity Fair editorial where three naked women and Tom Ford in a tux. Um, what's your view on you know what powerful women in Hollywood and in the music industry should be doing? Um, and, and it seems that you can't criticize those women without other women coming at you saying, well, you shouldn't criticize them because they're really successful, and that in itself is a huge move forward for women. So what's, what's your view on that? Well, I think it's ridiculous to say that you can't criticize women. You know, I will criticize Liz Jones in the Daily Mail till I'm blue in the face. Just because she's a woman doesn't make her, you know, immune. It doesn't protect her. I'd say you can't criticize a woman because she's a woman. Is just like sexism in reverse. You know, I treat women like they're humans. I treat men like they're humans. If a man says something I disagree with, I'll criticize it. If a woman says something I disagree with, I'll criticize it. Um, I think the thing with women in Hollywood is it's quite difficult. Linda Opst, who was a very powerful producer, has just written a book about why depictions of, of women, uh, how depictions of women in Hollywood have gone down so much recently. And she says it's just because A, studios are more fearful. Studios just want big, powerful blockbusters that they can sell to China, basically, and Russia. And, um, and they're much more conventional, therefore. And there isn't great dialogue. There isn't room for great dialogue. There isn't room for a movie like When Harry Met Sally. Um, they want really simple things in which Shia LaBeouf shoots something and Rosie Huntington-Whiteley just stands by the sidelines and purses her lips. Uh, and I think Hollywood is a really tricky one because it is 
so it's so money dependent. There are very few super powerful women in Hollywood. There are plenty of screenwriters. There are a lot of producers. But you know, even someone like Ron Howard couldn't get the Arrested Development movie made on his own. You know, these you need people who are so huge, and they're not going to be behind that. But for women like Rihanna and Beyonce, I have, to say, I have so little patience with their you know practice of just taking all their clothes off all the time. I just ha I just have no patience for this. You know, they don't have to do that. They are choosing to do that because they know it gets them attention, um, and it's hardly just them. I mean, you know, it's Mila Kunis, Cameron Diaz, you know, Lana Del Rey. Like Jennifer Aniston's about to play a stripper. Jennifer Aniston, play Jennifer Aniston, though, is like <laughs> she's like sort of made a career out of playing the most retrograde visions of womanhood, and it's a really sh sad story because right after she left Friends, she was in that film, The Good Girl. In which she played a, a checkout girl at like a drugstore, and she was married to some schlubby guy, but she had an affair with this teenage boy who worked in the store. And then a friend of the, her husband's found out and blackmailed her and said, "If you don't have sex with me, I'm going to tell you tell your husband." And it was this really dark film, but she was really good in it. But it was a really small film, and she wanted to be an A-lister, yeah. so therefore she just started taking all her clothes off and starring in films with Gerard Butler and. Um, <laughs> Neither of those is really the way to long-lasting credibility, as far as I can tell. No offense to Gerard Butler fans here. Um, I, yeah, all those women who just take their clothes off on magazine. I, you know, I understand if you're just starting out. You know, like Marilyn Monroe. You know, just starting out. You know, she would take her clothes off and a bit towards the end, to be fair. Um, you don't need to do that now. You know, like Jennifer Aniston earns like 15 million dollars a movie. Beyonce is married to Jay Z. And is the biggest-selling woman on the planet, as far as I can tell. I, I just, I think it's really disgusting. And when I write, I, I wrote a column about that when Beyonce was on the cover of GQ, and she gave this interview, going, "I just think it's terrible the way you know women can't define their own sexiness. I think women should define their own sexiness." And then to prove that, she then posed for seven photos of her wearing just a bra and knickers, jumping on a trampoline, photographed by Terry Richardson, who's this completely creepy. Fashion photographer who lives in New York, who's been accused of molestation and worse of models throughout his career. So, like, that's your great feminist stance, like to take off all your clothes and jump on a trampoline. Like, what are you doing in in a men's magazine? Like, what are you doing? Like, you don't have to do that. But this idea that it, if you don't do it, you'll be seen as like slightly weird, unsexy. You have to look constantly sexually available. You know what? You don't. If you get to a certain level, like I'm not at that level, I'm also not taking my clothes off. But you know, if, if you get to a level like Beyonce or someone like that, you don't have to do that anymore. Like, why are you doing that? What kind of message is that sending to young girls? What kind of message is that sending to your daughter? You know, to just take off all your clothes and pose for GQ readers to wank over. Like, it's not, like that's not your career. Like, you know, you can't sing about being an independent woman. And then jump on a trampoline for Terry Richardson. That's just nonsense. Well, on that note, <laughs> write and write again. You can keep chatting to Hadley for the price of a book. So can we thank her for what's been a very enjoyable hour? More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.